Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan and joined as usual by Benjamin Red. Ben, it's been a long while. How are you? It man? has been forever. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm doing good, but it, I'm I'm happy to see you yeah. up and out of the hospital and everything. Uh, yeah. Last week, we, we were supposed to come back last week uh, and we promised everyone we would come back last week. Sorry about that, everyone. But uh, apparently a bunch of microbes had other plans and <laughs> Nizar, you, you went to the hospital for food poisoning. Yeah, I don't know why I always go to the hospital only for food poisoning, you know, <laughs> bad digestive system, I guess. But like, yeah, it was um, it was a difficult, you know, night or evening and and uh, and the second day. But then I'm feeling much better now. And, Glad to you hear. know, yeah, just, you know, shout out to the great nurses at ABMC for like giving us so much, giving patients so much care and so much attention around the clock. I don't like them when they walk in at 5 a.m. saying you need an antibiotic. Like, I don't need an antibiotic at 5 a.m. I need to sleep. But other than <laughs> that, like, I love their care, especially this this, this nurse called Wissam. She was amazing. I'm really, like, just, I was satisfied with with the, with this care that I received, uh, although I I feel a lot of empathy with uh, with AUB workers because of the bad policies at the, at the, of the administration, including firing a lot of their colleagues and leaving their salaries uh, lagging behind what you really need to live in Lebanon. So just shout out to the nurses uh, specifically. I and especially right now when they're facing this, you know, unprecedented global pandemic, uh, you know, that these are frontline workers um, and, you know, uh, doing an amazing job. Uh, and of course, we're going to talk about coronavirus a little bit later on in the program. Uh, but first, we're going to start out the Lebanese politics podcast with some American politics for a change, right? Yeah, we've got big news. Uh, Joe Biden appears to have won. Uh, the Trump era is uh, over, it seems. Uh, for now. <laughs> well, yeah, for now. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. But yeah, the, this is, uh, I mean, it's a big deal for, for the United States, obviously, but also for the world. Yeah, it is. I mean, how much it will affect Lebanon and the region. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, you know, contingencies uh, in there. But we know for sure that Biden will not have the same uh, aggressive approach of Trump towards, you know, um, things like um, anti-Palestinian, you know, expansion and uh, and support for the right-wing government in Israel or in terms of uh, the huge campaign against Iran and refusing to sign any reasonable deal or whatever. So we will probably see less uh, escalation in the conflict, but that's, you know, a bit far in the future because you can't reverse foreign policy in a few days. You need a while. Yeah, yeah. And and if you're talking about, you know, like effects on Lebanon, you know, there probably won't be a whole lot of direct effect, but what you're talking about, these regional uh repositioning of the of the of the United States, uh yeah, there could be some changes there, but I don't think it's gonna be it's not gonna be like night and day or anything. Biden may take a, a more conciliatory line towards Iran, uh, for instance, just because you know Trump made such a big deal out of blowing up the nuclear agreement with Iran, it, he may take a slightly harsher stance towards Saudi, towards Israel. But let's remember that, you know, there are very long standing ties between the United States and Israel, between the United States and the Saud family that rules Saudi Arabia. And so any sort of change isn't going to be all of a sudden, oh, he's, you know, pro-Hamani and uh, anti-MBS or anything like, no, there, there are very much limits. Uh, there, there are definitely limits as to how far U.S. policy can change and how quickly it can change. But those changes may filter down to effects on Lebanon yeah. uh, sort of indirectly is my sense. 
Yeah, def- I mean, if you listen to Biden's uh, speech at APAC, you know, uh, there's Dianus lobby, at Kamala Harris's speech at APAC, which is probably worse, at, you know, the answers they gave when they were asked about Israel, Palestine, etc. You see that, you know, you I mean, it's not a friend, you know, it's not a friendly administration. It's just a bit less fascistic than, you know, <laughs> than Trump, Trump administration in terms of like it's, uh, it's anti-Palestinian uh, perspective. But they, I mean, we shouldn't expect like dramatic changes, but there will definitely be probably, you know, um, a different new, new tools or old tools uh, that are more diplomatic, uh, less, you know, sanction based, less military. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, and 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 with that change, there 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 could be theoretically some direct changes uh, when it comes to Lebanon if uh, Gibran Basile is correct in uh, what he told us today. But it, we know that just this past week, the United States sanctioned Gibran Basile, one of the top politicians in Lebanon. Uh, he's an MP, longtime minister, uh, although he's not in go- in the government now and the the leader of the Free Patriotic Movement, which is the largest Christian party in the country. Uh, the U.S. sanctioned him on Friday, and he uh, and so this was supposedly under a uh, anti-corruption thing, right? So the U.S. for the first time against a Lebanese politician has used the Global Magnitsky Act, which they, they had sort of, I mean, they had hinted that they were moving in this direction before, and in the last round of sanctions, which hit Ali Hassan Khalil of the Amal Movement and Yusuf Fanianos of Marada, both allies of Hezbollah, the U.S. did this sort of weird thing, right, where they talked about anti-corruption in their statements, but then they used a uh, that the, the actual legal basis for it was this executive order that George W. Bush signed back in 2001, right in the wake of the September 11th attacks that was very much geared at anti-terrorism. So it seems that the U.S. has shifted from that sort of weird straddling with, with those guys to, uh, with this sanctions effect, actually just going full on for anti-corruption uh, stuff, at least as the legal basis is concerned. But a, a lot of people have doubts as to that and think that, oh, well, no, the, the, the real reason obviously was Gibran Basile's alliance with Hezbollah. Yeah, I mean, definitely there is no question that the Hezbollah aspect is the real one and the corruption one is just a facade, you know, to make it look like uh, they're targeting the least popular politician in Lebanon because of how pop- unpopular he is here and because he's involved in corruption, etc. And Basile was very clear against like the, the U.S. discourse and the decision in his uh, long 50-minute kind of press talk um, on Sunday. He said uh, first that the Americans are pursuing an agenda that is very dangerous, that is basically about isolating Hezbollah and the Shia and uh, potentially causing civil war in Lebanon. So he said that the FPM deal with Hezbollah, the memorandum of understanding, is kind of what saved Lebanon from this from civil strife, and the Americans are pushing on the same line. And he 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 recalls how things happened in the last few days. One of the things before he got into like how he actually got sanctioned, one of the things he mentioned is that Hariri was uh, insisting on him to be a minister back in summer 2018 when the first to- early talks of sanctions were there, partly because they knew that Basile might be subjected to, to, to sanctions at some point. So being a foreign minister with some diplomatic immunity would help him. Uh, and then Hariri switched completely after the experience with the uprising and everything. And Basile said that, 
you know, at that point, Hariri was like, I wouldn't form a government if uh, Basile has to be in it, as opposed to I, I want Basile to be in my government. So a big dramatic shift. Anyway, uh, so he, he's portraying this shift as part of the change in the U.S., uh, as part of the U.S., you know, political assassination against him. That's what, that's, these are the words he used. He said that the U.S. funded the Lebanese, some parts of the Lebanese revolution, the uprising, uh, as a colored revolution like they did in other countries, you know, Ukraine, Georgia, etc. Like this theory that these revolutions are against authoritarianism and against um, sometimes uh, figures or politicians that are against um, anti-Western imperialism, etc. Uh, that these are colored revolutions that uh, are funded so that they can, you know, advance U.S. interests, etc. It's quite a bullshit theory, but it's held by some people among uh, the... Hezbollah's left, maybe, and uh, and Basile kind of mentioned it very clearly a couple of times that this is, was a college revolution and that uh, the U.S. recently um, called down, a, high to, a top official in the U.S. called down and said, uh, you have to break ties with Hezbollah. And then on October 21, Basile met with the ambassador of the U.S. in Lebanon, who told him that he had four days. She gave him, she gave him an ultimatum of four days to satisfy four demands that the U.S. has or otherwise face sanctions. Uh, just quite, you know, rude, <laughs> just, you know, to be clear. Uh, they gave him four It's a, it's a big swing for U.S. Yeah. policymakers, if, if, if this is accurate, which, I, I mean, I don't have any reason to doubt this. It makes sense what, what Basile said. Yeah, uh, I mean, it makes sense not to accept any, like, framework of negotiation on this basis, right? Um, but anyway, they told him that you have to break ties with Hezbollah immediately and three other demands that Basile didn't reveal. Otherwise, you're facing sanctions. He didn't respond to that. He said, he told them things like, you know, I want to be your friend and not your agent or, you know, you can't treat me in this way, etc. And then um, he was saying that Americans were actually ready to support him. And they held a meeting with him where he, they promised him if he would break up the ties with Hezbollah, regardless of the three other demands, that they would help him financially and politically, politically, and make him a celebrity, which is a weird thing that he said, like superstardom. They promised him superstardom in the U.S. and in Lebanon. <laughs> I really want to know what they promised him. This is according to him. <laughs> according to him, yeah. Um, so he said that they they had a carrot and a stick. And the sanctions were the sick, but they, they showed him the carrot first and he refused. So he's trying to say that he took a strong stance, etc. And then on November 4, there was a meeting at his place where, you know, they gave him 24 hours, just do it or not, as I said. And uh, he didn't, so they hit him with the sanctions. That's his story about what happened. And he said that the U.S. barely mentioned corruption anytime during the whole thing. And they were only focusing on Hezbollah and they didn't care about other demands. Um, so he said, you know, the relationship is with the U.S. is quite bad now but he he was looking forward for better ones with uh, the biden kamala harris uh, administration and um, he said he, he he kind of served some blows to people inside this party who he's saying were, were, were betraying him in the recently including someone who was outside of lebanon but inside fbm who was trying to sabotage him and uh, he said he will pursue like he will prosecute this person as part of the arbitrary mechanism inside the, the party and he like basically uh, you know, uh, he he threw shade on people like uh, Naamat Frem and Shamir Rukos and people who left his his parliamentary block, saying that they were influenced by foreign uh, interests and domestic interests, etc. Um, so in general, Basile said we're sticking with Hezbollah. 
against like this U.S. pressure. Uh, we would like better relations with the U.S., but we won't be like we won't sub uh, submit to them. Um, he said that Americans are pursuing, uh, uh, as I said, a very reckless strategy in Lebanon, and um, he said that he will pursue, like, prosecute the 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 the, the U.S. Treasury for this decision in one way or another in, by using a, a U.S.-based law firm. Um, to try to to prove that they have no evidence for their claims about his corruption and that this, this is a purely political decision. And which, by the way, the, the U.S. gave no details. Essentially, they they said, "Oh, uh, Basile is corrupt." I think the one detail that they gave was in the Treasury statement. They they sent out statements from the Department of the Treasury and the Department of State. Uh, the Treasury statement didn't make mention of Hezbollah. The state one did. Also, the Treasury Department statement, if I'm remembering correctly, did mention one thing that. Uh, it, that the corruption thing was related to deals that he had conducted while energy minister in 2014. He was only caretaker energy minister in 2014 for like a month and a half. So I think people really need to take a look at that and see, uh, you know, where uh, where this might be, what the U.S. is pointing to. But at the same time, it was just very uh, weak justification from the United States as to, you know, they're, they're basically just calling out corruption here, but then offering absolutely nothing to support it, no leads, no way to really follow up on it. Uh, so that if Basile is corrupt, you know, a competent, a competent judiciary could go after him in theory, but only if they actually know what's going on. Yeah, uh, exactly. It's interesting that Basile went all the way, you know, out against, um, against the, the U.S. and, you know, he, he said things like, you know, the U.S. is trying, has a whole agenda that is against Lebanon's interests, including naturalizing refugees and, uh, you know, um, peace with Israel on Israel's terms and, uh, you know, relaxed approach to terrorism, many things. But he also talked about um, the fact that he, uh, the FPM has fundamental conflicts with Hezbollah, which is something that he usually doesn't elaborate on, neither the FPM nor Hezbollah talk about this extensively. So recently we, we heard once Basil saying that a divergence with Hezbollah is a possibility. And now he elaborated on it saying that, you know, Hezbollah and the FPM have one of the main issues on which they have conflict uh, is, first of all, the type of the state in Lebanon, that the FPM believes in a, in a civil state as opposed to you know an Islamic or Christian state or whatever. Uh, that's debatable how how, how that's <laughs> translated in <laughs> practice, you know. Um, but he also said that Hez Hezbollah has a position against Israel completely, while the FPM believes in Israel's right to exist and to be safe as part of, you know, the Arab peace initiative and like establishing of two states, etc. So uh, it's a big statement. That's a big statement. And, you know, he mm -hmm. said that a lot of people from Hezbollah's people don't like me because of this. But this is the thing with Hezbollah. We are we have understanding and political you know, strategic alliance, but it's not based on full agreement on everything. Yeah. Yeah, but d despite this, uh, his, his sort of like listing of the ways we're different uh, from Hezbollah, you know, this was his moment where he really came through and sort of proved to them that like, okay, well, you trusted my father-in-law and you trust my father-in-law, Michel Aoun. You know, he's not going to be president forever. His term ends in 2022. I want to be president. You can trust me the same way. Because when the pressure is on, I'm going to stand with you, ultimately. Yeah, this is one of the main things to take away from this whole thing, that Basile is kind of gaining points. He's, he improved his score with Hezbollah quite significantly, I think, with this uh, press talk and this position that he, uh, that he 
confronting confronting someone like the U.S. administration, they won't forget it. I think um, whether this means that he will actually become president against a lot of political odds, we'll see. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's definitely now um, more comfortable shifting to a more clearly anti-U.S. Uh, kind of discourse as opposed to what he always had and what all the FM always had, which is saying, you know, you have we have a memorandum of understanding with Hezbollah, but we are kind of closer to the West and how the West thinks and um, how it does things, etc. So now <laughs> it's it's becoming more tricky. I think it's going to become more tricky. Yeah, and. Uh... You know, a lot of people responded to this announcement with glee. <laughs> I think that's the only word that describes it, like mm. unfettered glee. I, I I, haven't really been able to share that personally, uh, just because I, I think, yeah, okay, so you can recognize that Basile is a part of the system that is incredibly fucked up, uh, and he's playing a certain role that certainly is not helpful at times. But at the same time, I, I think you can sort of separate out the issue of who Gibran Basile is and whether you support him from, well, is this U.S., you know, basically interference in uh, domestic political affairs of Lebanon, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, and and if things went down, as Basile said, with, you know, the U.S. giving him this ultimatum to break ties with Hezbollah, which would be this huge fundamental shift, Right. If that actually happened, it is just mind-boggling to me. You know, like, are U.S. policymakers, are people at state paying attention even to what's going on in the country? Do they have any fucking idea? Uh, because if they went with that line, if this, if this is accurate, then it it shows really just a misunderstanding of the domestic political situation in the country. Yeah, and the, uh, the tendency to accept, you know, scenarios of... Uh of war and scenarios of geographical division because this is what where you get if you try to uh, to corner Hezbollah you know um, with all my my uh, you know uh, with all the resentment I have for a lot of Hezbollah's politics we tried this in the past you know like uh, Lebanon has tried this thing where they where you know different forces try to corner uh, regardless of who is it on the left or on the right, but try to, you know, isolate uh, a, a section of the population. Not more importantly, like a militia, a very strong militia. And that's not going to go well. So uh, what you're saying is it's it shows that they don't know the local context enough. And what I'm saying is if they know, then it's worse. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, again, it seems to have backfired uh, if this is the case. So quickly, though, I want to make clear what this actually means on the ground. Uh, so th th this basically just means Basile is cut off from the uh, global financial system. You know, like he's not going to be able to get an American Express card. He, uh, <laughs> you know, any any bank essentially in the world uh, isn't going to want to deal with him, which, you know, maybe that's bad for him personally, but it really doesn't do a whole lot beyond that. He can still be a minister. He can still be president he can you know he's he is an mp that doesn't change at least on paper right but you have a lot of people talking about how just this affects his reputation a lot more and it, it becomes harder for him to become president for instance it, it becomes harder for him to have uh you know complete freedom in negotiations over cabinet formation 
Whether this will actually serve to slow down the cabinet formation process or not, I'm I'm not entirely sure, but it's already going pretty slowly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, things were not going swimmingly before this anyway. Yeah. Uh, but with Hariri, it just seems as though things are plodding along per normal. And as if we went in a time machine back to 2018 where things just took months and months and months to iron out. And there was this whole question with Drew's representation and with Maronite representation and who gets what seats. And it seems as though they're playing the exact same fucking game again. Like yeah. Yeah, there, there was in, in the aftermath of the port explosion and the resignation of the Diab government, there was uh, a big push like, oh, no, we need to we need a new government now. Uh, Emmanuel Macron visited the country twice uh, and there was a whole lot of energy behind. OK, let's let's do this. Let's get a new government in place by September 15th. All of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and and to me, I, and, and I, I hope that I'm just wrong on this. Uh, but I feel as though all of that uh, urgency has just left and we are back in the normal, like, okay, Hariri and Aon or Hariri and Basile negotiating over shares and doing it in a very slow manner. Definitely. And this is one of the most concerning things about Hariri coming back, returning as prime minister, is that it's really the return of politics as usual. And he's making it clear. <laughs> in more ways than one, yeah. 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 And um, I think what, what also happened with uh, the forensic audit at VDL tells the same story, right? So uh, yeah. we're, we're into more and more uh, uh, delays, right? Because, because um, the main issue is, will Lebanon save itself from a complete financial collapse and meltdown um, and get some uh, money in order to revive the financial system to an extent? Or uh, basically, you know, um, what is the action plan that will, will take us in one of the two directions? And I think this week we're getting back signs from the audit, audit aspect as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it may be connected to cabinet formation as well. Some people speculate. So we, we've been talking about this forensic audit of BDL for a while now. Uh, eventually, you know, the, the cabinet approved it uh, eventually. And uh, they signed a contract with uh, Alvarez and Marcel, international uh, consultancy firm that does auditing. And uh, it was this past week, that was the deadline for BDL to submit a bunch of documents, a bunch of information to the auditing firm, and they missed it. And basically what they did, I, uh, I think uh, Forbes came out and said that they had supplied 43% uh, of the information or something like that uh, requested by Alvarez. Now, BDL claims wrongly that banking secrecy precludes them from supplying any of the rest of the information. Uh, now, this, this is wrong because multiple, multiple legal experts have come out and said, no, that's not how things work. This is a lawful contract. You don't just get to basically shield uh, all of your accounts from a forensic audit just because of banking secrecy. First off, public monies are not covered by banking secrecy. And second off, there are just like standard ways of getting around other banking secrecy issues where they actually are applicable. Where they are applicable is, you know, maybe dealing with local banks and stuff like that. But you can get around that by simply identifying uh, these banks instead of saying Bank Audi did such and such. You say, you know, local bank number four did such and such. Uh, and this is sort of like international practice. So uh, BDL really doesn't have a legal leg to stand on here, but they're standing on it regardless. 
And this uh, past week, there was a big meeting because all of this came, all of these issues came to a head. There was a big meeting, I think, on Thursday in Babda with uh, Aon Saleme Raziwazni, the finance minister, uh, and a representative from Alvarez and Marcel, and they uh, essentially agreed to give the the audit and BDL a three month extension to get all these documents together and send them to the auditing firm. Now. This is a legally questionable thing, whether they can actually do this, but it's it's very worrying because, I mean, three months is a very, very long time for BDL to supply records that they should have submitted this past week or before. Uh, you know, they, they should have all of this stuff basically ready to go. It shouldn't take them three months to get everything together. And what some people have speculated is that this is a way to push off the audit far enough into the future where maybe in the meantime, people will sort of forget about it. Maybe you can uh, get a new government in place that will sort of either end the audit or sort of uh, uh, declaw it so that you don't get the information that uh, everybody wants. But this is, this is part of the problem, right? Because if this audit doesn't go forward, then you know there is no accountability. There's no way to actually see in detail specifically how the financial system collapsed in the country. Now we know broad strokes, we know like the overall story of this, but we don't know specifically who did what, when, and that's what you need if you want, say a competent judiciary at some point in the future to hold people accountable for what went wrong. Yeah, definitely. And uh, just the idea that, you know, a basic mechanism of accountability like this one, uh, where everyone knows that there's a problem with what BDL has done over the years, and everyone knows that without a forensic audit, you won't actually get this accountability. The fact that not only we still have the same leadership at BDL, I mean, they did elections, but the governor is still there, and he's you know the man behind the, the chaos that we're living right now uh, to an extent, and no one, obviously no one accepted to remove him or replace him, but also, like they're giving him, uh, you know, they basically they're letting him and themselves through him get away with murder by like refusing to um, to cooperate with with the audit company. And we saw Ibrahim Kanaan, the FPM MP, who is known to be probably the loyal servant to the banks in the parliament for sure, and to BDL. Kanaan said basically that the contract with the company should be. Uh, reconsidered and amended in a way that doesn't contradict the laws, which is fascinating that this is his solution to how you do it, you know. Uh, you, so you, we can only give 43% of the documents or of the information, then let's make the contract restricted to these 43% rather than open up the files that should be opened. Um, so it just shows how they're complicit with, uh, with the lack of accountability. I mean, it looks as though there's a cover-up going on. Yeah. Essentially, there there's an attempt at a cover up. That's what it looks like from the outside. Um, and that, that wasn't the only area that BDL uh, has been in hot water in uh, over the past month since uh, we last came to you. Uh, also, in this time, BDL has instituted these uh, sort of cash lira policies. There are a couple of them. One of them requires importers to provide cash lira if they want to make use of this subsidized exchange rate 1507 which is something that is open to importers of really basic items, uh, especially fuel, wheat, and medicine, uh, as well as medical equipment. 
these are things that you know hospitals rely on quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, at the same time, BDL instituted another policy that basically made it harder for banks to withdraw cash lira from BDL, basically introducing some penalties. And that's this complicated mechanism that depends on the bank. And uh, there's a formula involved, apparently. But long story short, it means that certain banks, at very least, won't make as much money if they take out cash lira. And certain banks have passed this on to their own depositors. So if you have an account at one of these banks, maybe you saw your withdrawal limit for cash lira lowered recently. Um, and so it seems as though BDL is trying to do a very quick about face on their lurification policy, actually, which has, you know, what, what we've seen over the past year is BDL and the banks realizing how big a hole they have in their balance sheets as, as far as dollars go. They owe a lot more dollars than the dollars that they have, right? Mm. And so the way to fix this, the BDL has been pursuing for several months is this sort of uh, slow motion lyrification process, especially through like Circular 151, for instance, that allowed people who have uh, bank accounts and dollars to withdraw those dollars in lira uh, at a higher rate. I think now it's 3,900. So what we saw as a result of this policy was a big explosion in the, in the amount of lira in circulation. And now BDL is, so now BDL is going, oh, uh, oh, let, let's switch that. Let, let's turn it around and really... Uh, you know, try to suck that cash lira back up through this policy aimed at importers, and then also limit the amount of cash lira that we are allowing into the system uh, through the banks. Uh, and and this has caused a lot of problems uh, for people. You know, just everyday depositors. You know, you get your paycheck or whatever uh, at the end of the month. Well, maybe you can't pull out your entire paycheck now, or maybe, you know, you you can't pay for some if you have some big expense or whatever. You're not even allowed to access the lira that you need to pay for that. But it's also had a big effect on hospitals themselves, because as I mentioned earlier, you know, like all of this stuff is imported. You know, the drugs are not all of it, but a, a large portion of the drugs and the medical equipment that is needed to do basic things is imported from abroad. And we saw the private hospitals coming out and saying, we can't deal with this cash lira policy. It's ludicrous. It's insane. You know, we won't, we can't pay for this stuff in cash. We can't pay the importers in cash. The importers are, are saying, well, you know, we have to have cash because otherwise BDL won't deal with us. And it's gotten to a point where private hospitals are saying, well, we may have to actually close our doors uh, to non-emergency and non-life-threatening cases. Uh, and they, they've they started, at least some hospitals have started to delay surgeries, do, you know, do certain things that certainly are starting to affect patient care, not for the better. And all of this hap is happening in the middle of a pandemic, which is even more insane, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, the big question now is, is Lebanon anyway able to manage this wave? I don't know if it's a wave or it's just, you know... Uh, the continuation of the wave, but this terrible situation that we are in, in uh, that we are in, in terms of the number of people, uh, the number of total cases we have. I mean, I believe that you know we're now we now have more total cases than China, which is just funny. Um, but also like forty thousand, forty five thousand active cases. That's a lot yeah. of people. 
Yeah. And you know, a percentage of the population every day now is just is being infected, and that's really different from the early days where we had a few cases from abroad, etc. Yeah, it is really scary. The numbers, uh, like you say, about forty-five thousand active cases right now. A month ago, there were only twenty-six thousand. Two months ago, fourteen thousand. Three months ago, four k. So if you actually look at this, if you plot it out on a, on a graph or you go to Worldometer or one of these websites uh, that has these uh, stats, you can see the exponential growth uh, very, very plain. And we are still just, we continue to shoot up higher and faster with every passing week, which is super, super concerning, especially because what happens afterwards? Well, you see the case numbers shoot up first, and then you see hospitalizations shoot up. And right now we're already at, uh, according to the World Health Organization, you know, 70% of the 807 regular beds are filled. This is as of their report uh, just Saturday. Uh, and 86% of the 325 ICU beds are full right now. Now they're trying to expand capacity and everything like that, but it, it, it expanding capacity is very, very hard. And it's not just a matter of, you know, buying more ventilators or something. You have to have the staff, you have to, you know, have all of these other things in place also to build capacity. So, and, and if we're racing against, you know, it's, if it's the virus versus, us building capacity, the virus is going to spread more quickly than the capacity can be lifted. The authorities are starting to respond to this a little bit. Uh, last week, they instituted a curfew again, 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. Uh, and it looks as though they may announce a lockdown this week. All right. So that's just one of the many things that is going wrong right now. Um, and it's very concerning. Uh, but we we also got news this week about something else, something that was uh, that happened uh, right when Lebanon started this upswing in coronavirus cases. The upswing had already began when the port explosion happened on August 4th. We are very belatedly starting to see, you know, how the investigation is going and who they're going to try to point the finger at uh, and who they're going to try to hold accountable for this, you know, massive man-made disaster. The uh, Higher Judicial Council announced Saturday that 25 people have been arrested in connection with the investigation. Also, three arrest warrants have been issued in absentia. Uh, 51 witnesses have given statements, and, and they said that, you know, we're working as fast as possible, but without rushing. The Bar Association has also filed several hundred uh, complaints with the judiciary against uh, individuals. So we'll see what happens with that as well. But the, there is a sense, you know, maybe, you know, that authorities aren't quite doing as much as they should right now. And, and if you compare those numbers, just compare the numbers, you know, how many people the Bar Association thinks should be charged and how many people the HJC has even talked to, you know, 51 people being interviewed. That is not a very in-depth investigation for the scale of calamity that happened especially with the amount of ambiguity that exists, right? Because what we know about the investigations so far are mostly through judicial sources talking to media. A uh, friend of the show, Taymur Azhari, has been doing a great job like uh, keeping us up to date with the with the investigations by uh, different people, right? Because so we had 
official Lebanese investigation led by Judge Fadi Sawan. This is like basically the state authorized investigation of the event, which is the most important thing happening surrounding investigation. And then you have uh, people like the French and the Americans, and I think the British, that launched their own investigations into the blast in the last, you know, a uh, couple of months. And what we knew before is that the FBI handed someone their, find, their findings and they didn't have an assertive conclusion on what caused the event. So we don't even know yet if it's intentional or an accident. And the French experts, according to uh, Temur's reporting, have also reached the same conclusion, which is we don't know yet how the blast happened and whether it was an act of you know terrorism or not, or you know it was instigated on purpose or not. But, but what we know is that the whole approach to accountability with this investigation and, you know, whereas we were promised big things like, you know, maximum punishment to whoever caused this and, you know, going all the way up and not shining, shying away from real accountability from the president and the prime minister and everyone. Um, this is not what's happening. Yeah. You know, like they're looking at, you know, according to Taimur and other people's reports, they're looking at, maximum five years which is in Lebanese prison time like less than four years of um, sentences for mid and low level administrative officials who um, or maybe security officials I'm not sure who uh, you know fell short or uh, you know are accused or charged with willful negligence you know it sounds right right willful negligence is quite quite kind of uh, uh, accurate in terms of what happened or what we think happened if it wasn't an intentional, you know, explosion. But there is more than that because there's there are people who appointed these people without them having the competencies, right? The the, the skills to do things or the the credibility. Uh, there are uh, people who had the head who were managing the port and the customs who were directly responsible for overseeing this area, and they failed to do anything about it. And you have you know someone like Badr Dahar former head of the customs who is now arrested. Current head of the customs. Sorry, current head of the... I, I just... I mean, he's I'm always suspended or yeah. whatever. He's under house arrest, uh, but Aoun refused to dismiss him or the other port officials from their jobs. Which was... I mean, really? How surreal is this country? Like, the first thing that you would do after yeah. this moment is basically remove... I think you should, like, change the whole leadership of the port like absolutely from scratch you know bring in new people let these people go have other jobs if they're not responsible for 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 what happened but like for fuck's sake just bring in new people like the same with with bdl no change no change at all even though there is so much accountability there to be to be held so anyway um uh, it's just a bit depressing that uh, this is where they take us and it looks like you know, uh, like you were saying before, it seems that they're covering up to their to their to their uh, crimes by uh, avoiding any serious uh, change and any serious accountability. And kind of similar to what we were seeing with the with the central bank, we're seeing with uh, the port investigation. It's more of the same old mentality, and there is no evidence yet from anyone in the political class that there is a serious consideration of um, changing anything about the structure of power in this country or. You know, anything that uh, kind of gives real hope to realistic people uh, that uh, things might change to the better. So I don't know about, you know, the IMF or Macron or whoever, any foreign actors are looking at the Lebanese situation right now. How are they thinking that this is something that we can work with? I wouldn't believe it if they are. You know, I wouldn't be, I didn't, I was surprised that Macron accepted the idea of Hariri coming back. Uh, and, uh, and now I'm even more shocked at how 
patient they have been, <laughs> to be honest. Like, if, I don't think Hariri will succeed in getting uh, IMF money, which is basically one of the most important mandates for his upcoming government if it's formed. Um, so I'm see- I'm feeling like we're just headed to more failure, you know, and, and a collapse. I mean, things are pretty shitty, but... We haven't reached the bottom. We should always remember that. We right. We're, we're still waiting. You know, hopefully none of this happens, but we can see on the horizon the potential for us to sort of go over the cliff on coronavirus if hospital capacity is reached. We can see the potential as well, the the, the, the very real uh, potential of, you know, BDL basically running out of dollars and, you know, or or deciding we're not going to touch, uh, you know, the required reserves and therefore all of this, you know, the the subsidized imports is going to stop, which is, is going to be an absolute social catastrophe when uh, when it does happen. And they've telegraphed that this will probably happen, you know, by the end of the year, thereabouts. And so, you know, we are before that. We haven't gone over these cliffs yet. Hopefully we will not. But we can see, oh, my God. Things are about to get so much worse than we could possibly imagine. And in the meantime, what's happening? It appears as though there is sort of, I mean, I I can't say that there's a cover-up or anything in either of these cases with the BDL audit or with uh, what's gone on at the port, but it smells like a cover-up. It seems as though there's no interest in accountability or transparency or anything. Uh, You know, BDL is very unclear when it comes to actually communicating any of its policies with the public. Uh, And it, 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 it has obfuscated things. It has come out and said things that are just plain wrong, like uh, its reliance on banking secrecy. And that just looks like they're trying to cover stuff up. They're trying to use banking secrecy as a shield so that all of these people, which probably it's a lot of the political class that would be implicated, you know, all of this information never gets out. Or at very least, you know, maybe it's maybe it's banks that are protected by this. We don't know, but certainly something seems to be, something is fishy that is going on here. At the same time, something fishy is going on when you have a massive explosion that you know takes out a huge swath of the city, kills over 200 people, and then all of a sudden, it'll just it seems as though there's very, very little interest in accountability and finding out what really happened. Uh, and and when we do get a few leaks here and there of what's going on, we hear it is directed at low-level officials and all of a sudden, which makes you think, oh something is fishy here again, because certainly ministers knew, high-ranking politicians knew uh, certain things about this. So to me, it, you know, it, it it really is unbelievable the degree to which the political class has basically just gone back to politics as usual and yeah. said, okay, we, we can avoid this problem with BDL by delaying it. We can avoid this problem uh, with the port by, you know, just laying it and holding a few low-level people accountable. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, we'll take our time on cabinet formation because ultimately it matters whether I get five seats instead of four in the cabinet. You know, that's more important than actually doing any reforms or getting things done. Yeah, and uh, I agree with all of what you said. And I think that the degree of desperation that this is causing, you know, when you when you look at the port explosion, for example, and you see that there is no accountability, you feel, okay, there is nothing that is beyond the lines of what, you know, there's nothing that they wouldn't do to stay in power. The the case of, of Badr Dahir from the customs is one example. Right now, now that he is arrested, we also knew that he's been charged with uh, receiving a bribe to... Um, 
to let a, a Saudi prince who had smuggled drugs into Lebanon escape from Lebanon for in return for for a lot of money. So one of the points that uh, that I I mean I think Taymour made it as well is that you know when when he left his position when he was forced to leave his position now we're finding things out about his his uh, his commitments uh, like things that he's committed in the past. What would happen if Salemi loses, you know, his position in the central bank or Berri in the parliament, etc.? So many of these people have a lot of uh, dirt uh, that could be on that. So allegedly, allegedly, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> as journalists, allegedly. Um, so yeah. So when you have this uh, hopelessness, um, yeah. not only do you um, become less interested in change, you also people also become more reactionary. And people also there's it creates a certain ideological vacuum whereby people are feel that the the present is like the worst thing like it's it's an apocalyptic time and they start getting polarized over you know conflicts that don't really matter to their you know uh, aren't really directly connected to their own interests and this is what we're seeing I think from the propaganda that is happening both by you know. Uh, Hezbollah and its allies and by the LF and the other camp there isn't a camp now but you know by the anti-Hezbollah front including from within the anti-establishment movement um, we're seeing this polarization and it makes me scared you know um, it needs it will eventually happen because uh, there is a serious conflict about who controls decision making in Lebanon and how but the way in which it's happening today is really scary. Same old politics happening at the official level and on the grassroots level, people are becoming more and more polarized. And a lot of people are saying, you know, if these people are, are going to stay in Lebanon, I'm ga- I can't stay in Lebanon anymore. And uh, there is like kind of an existential, uh, yeah, we're at, the, at this existential crossroad uh, at the country. So I'm just worried that people will be, you know, taken to not the extremes, but just like, on a polarization based on the interests of the ruling class, as long as this this is the politics we have, you know, uh, zero accountability, but a lot of political conflict over other things, uh, you know, U.S. sanctions, uh, all of the every every basically every bit of politics that is happening is happening to reinstitute the same old politics as opposed to uh, bring in something new. Yeah, things are not going, I think, in the right direction on any level. Uh, it it seems. Yeah. Well, on that note, on that great note, <laughs> I, I I think that's it uh, for us this week. You got anything else? I don't think so. Oh, I just they, uh, yeah, just it's just a very interesting time, right? So many things happening, and uh, we're I think literally too much to keep up with. It's uh, it's yeah, insane. I, and... I I I have no idea really what's going on in the U.S. <laughs> because <laughs> I've been so wrapped up in what's been going I mean, on also here. Because yeah. you're like managing editor of a new publication, and <laughs> you were time working is, like at a premium. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I mean. Um, I mean, I hope we just had, we were able to give a certain idea of, of the situation because we've been uh, off for so long. So uh, uh, also like just, you know, uh, there hasn't been a lot of interaction from our side, but let us like just listeners, let us know what you think. If um, there are things we haven't covered well, we're always interested in your feedback. We might seem like we're lazy these times, but we're not. We're just overwhelmed. Uh, we're still <laughs> or in, in the hospital. Or in the hospital. Yeah. Just still very <laughs> passionate about this. So um you know, share this this uh, the, the show around. Let us know what you think, etc. It's it's good to just keep the conversation alive. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, this is you know we're we're in it right now, and uh, 
over the course of the next few months, uh, it, it's going to be decisive for Lebanon, I, I, I think. Yeah, it's going to be a, a time to remember. I think we'll reflect on it in a couple of years and yeah. we'll say, you know, this was, well, this was an intense uh, time to be alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For all the wrong reasons. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, that's it for us uh, for this week. Uh, we will be back with you as soon as we can. <laughs> no promises as to when exactly, but uh, hopefully next week. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar El-Fil.